Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you after a brief hiatus uh, for joining me again here for Beyond the Pink Cloud. We are back in 2021, and I'm thrilled to bring you this episode that was recorded in 2020 with Dr. Jamie Merrick. Dr. Jamie's incredible. She is the author of Trauma in the 12 Steps. She's very active in the recovery world and the trauma world. She's an EMDR practitioner. She has a whole um, movement academy. She is a woman of many, many talents, and I will let you hear it from her as we get into the discussion. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and Jamie's just so knowledgeable. It was really wonderful to be able to pick her brain on a lot of these different moving pieces that go into facilitating healing and recovery and facilitating healing through trauma and that that go into creating a good life, really, you know, because that's, with all of this, that's the end game. And I, I you know, I continue to think we've got to We've got to focus on that piece always. Like, what is all this healing and, wor- and work, you know, when we do the work? Like, what's our end game? And it's to have a, a wonderful, vibrant life. So I, I'm wishing everyone elements of vibrancy and, and wonderment here in our, our new, you know, our new calendar year of 2021. I know that doesn't just automatically flip a switch and everything's different, but it is a time for introspection and reflection and, and to look ahead. For for me, what's going on in my world this week, we are, or next week, actually, the four-week course, Sober, Calm, and Wild, is starting January 18th. So if you would like to kickstart your 2021 with some really awesome tools and some wonderful experiential practices that both help to cultivate your inner calm, and when I say cultivate your inner calm, I mean, really, not just teach you techniques for calm, but help you on a system-wide level to develop more capacity for calm and to go through life with more calm. So it's not like we go through four weeks, you learn some tools and that's it. Hopefully in the four weeks, the goal and what I've seen before is that your system has actually changed and so that you are more calm. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, The other part of this course is obviously supporting sobriety. And again, you know, why are we getting sober? Why are we doing these things? It's to have this vibrant, thriving, rich life, you know, where we are able to be fully immersed in all of our experiences and fully present in our bodies with some joy, you know, with a lot of joy. And so another big piece, as as a lot of you know, I'm, I'm so crazy about this concept of the inner wild, and that's something we really touch into in this course as well as it pertains to our boundaries and our choices. You know, what is our yes? What is our no? How can we stay in this nice, calm, grounded sense of connection, yet be free in our expression of our inner wild? Because sobriety does not take that away from us. Instead, I think sobriety gives gives us the opportunity to be fully empowered and just fully expressive in our wild nature, because we all have this. We're all animals on the inside. And so again, to cultivate some practices and understanding of how we can we can have all of these characteristics and all of these parts of us come together. And so our system can organize around them a little bit better. And, and we go through life feeling more like ourselves. 
So if you're interested in that and would like to sign up for the course, please come on in. The the first 20 people get a one-on-one call with me, which is awesome. And then we have group coaching and group calls for four weeks, as well as plenty of things to keep you busy, but not too much to stress you out. <laughs> and it's, I'll say it like that. It's a great course. I've had really wonderful feedback from people in the past who have noticed these changes in their lives and in their in their intimate relationships. So if you're interested, take advantage, come on in. I'll put a, a link for more info and where you can sign up in the show notes. And the early bird price goes through tomorrow, Thursday. I'm publishing this on Wednesday the 13th. The early bird price will go through Thursday the 14th at midnight. So if you want in, take advantage of the early bird price. It's $250 for the four weeks, and you'll get a lot out of it. Everyone does. And I think at this time of year, Anytime really, you know, but as we are doing more kind of assessment and reflection, it's nice to have some new tools and new ways to ground into ourselves so that it's not just like reaching for for different stars or different pieces and feeling discombobulated. We can create and cultivate that sense of organization within ourselves and it makes the rest of our lives easier. Welcome to 2021, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your support of the podcast. Please tell a friend if you love the show. I've got some great episodes lined up in the next few weeks here through the next month. But enjoy this episode with Dr. Jamie. She is an incredible woman, and I have no doubt you will get a lot out of what she has to say. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Hi, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. And with me today, I have the amazing Dr. Jamie Marich. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Dr. Alice. So nice to be here with you. Oh, nice to be here too. I should have called you Dr. Jamie. We can throw around our doctors um, all day. You can call me Jamie. I'm so <laughs> especially when we're talking about addiction. I'm just Jamie. Come on. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Um, so Dr. Jamie Marich, I'm going to read just a little bit from your bio to give the audience an overview in case they don't know about your amazing work. She describes herself as a facilitator of transformative experiences. She's a clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, perform, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, TEDx speaker, and recovery advocate. She unites all of these elements and her mission to inspire healing in others. And that is just a very short piece of some of the, the overview of the work that Dr. Jamie does, because your, your website is amazing. I was looking through there earlier today and all of the different projects and, um, and books that you've written and things that you're involved in and, and talks that you give, and even your blog posts, everything is, it's a lot and it all feels very unified. So I love the work that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you for noticing that it's all unified because sometimes people look at the various things that I do. And I know I, I have a, a son as he's technically my former stepson, but I helped to raise him and he's just a joy in my life. And he always says, Jamie, how many jobs do you have? Like, it seems like you do about <laughs> eight or nine different things. And I said, yes. And they all fit together for me because it is all about transformation. So whether we're doing that with advocating for more trauma-informed 12-step recovery, promoting practices like EMDR therapy, uh, cultivating love of the expressive arts, writing, it, it all comes together in this cauldron that I call trans, or I, I, don't, I didn't name it transformation, that's just what it is, right? It's all about transformative experiences. I love that you've found a, a way to, <clears throat> like, to bring all of that together and integrate it, even for yourself, because that's something I struggle with, with sort of the various background things that I have and trying to, to find that unification 
Um, and I love the piece that you did on a practitioner's identifying as being like weird or, um, yeah, too woo. I was like, oh, I relate to this so much. I'm so excited to speak with her. Was there any, like in your journey and pulling all of these different pieces together, were there any real like moments for you that were aha moments or pivotal moments and, and being able to, to, to do that integration? With the work? That's an excellent question. I've not been asked in a while, so I'm, I'm happy to answer it. I think very early in my clinical career, because like a lot of us, I got into doing clinical work through my own recovery experience and wanting to pay it forward. And an early recovery mentor thought I'd be good at it. So I did the graduate school route. In graduate school is when I got into my own trauma recovery, because I knew I wouldn't be able to finish graduate school unless I got more help for the ways I was being triggered. And pretty shortly into my clinical career, probably by the end of year two, I had this light bulb moment that I am not able to do just one thing. Hmm. Uh, I have an appreciation for people who can work the same job 40, 50 hours a week. I, I get bored. I, I think that's just something about me that as a kid, I often felt a lot of shame about that you know, I can't stick with one thing that I get bored too easily and I'm always moving on to the next thing. But as an adult, I, I have found it really is just who I am and it's not a bad thing. Uh, and as I already said, to me, they all fit together in one way or another. And I think being a teacher and an educator and a writer makes me a better clinician and being a clinician informs the teaching and the writing. <clears throat> So I think for me, it's been learning to embrace all these different roles I can occupy in life and let them inform each other. But that really was kind of born out of this experience I had sitting at my desk in this agency I was working at saying, I love being a clinician. It's not like I don't love being a clinician, but I can't only do this. I love that. It's so wonderful just to have those that aha moment and then the <clears> acceptance <throat> that comes with it and then everything that's born of it. Yes. Th thank God for aha moments. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I think I maybe you just gave me one. That was great. Um, and that's why I love asking those questions for people that I see you know, doing things like this and, and mm -hmm. really working in ways that, that seem very aligned with like your heart and your purpose and how you want to speak and, and be in the world. And I think so um, much of it too is about authenticity because uh, I think like a lot of younger professionals in recovery, when I came into doing clinical work, there was a lot of this pressure to fit in, to conform, to do the practices you were being taught in graduate school. And then once I, I, it really wasn't once I get into the field because so much of my own recovery experience was that I needed many things to truly recover and heal that it wasn't just going to meetings, it wasn't just doing counseling, that I had to bring in my expressive practices. Meetings helped, uh, professional trauma therapy helped, and then other spiritual practices helped, uh, especially because spiritual trauma was a big part of my upbringing. So I, I think all of those things helped me to realize I am who I am, and that is a person of many dimensions and many shapes and many colors and flavors. And I do a disservice to myself when I try to fit into the box that either the world gives me or our field tries to give me. So, uh, yeah, it's, I'm 20 years into this thing and it's all still about how can I be my most authentic self and love that and appreciate it. It's such a good question to ask. I think ask ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. Do you have any daily practices that you've had like throughout this journey that you found have been really consistent for you in helping with that or helping you stay grounded? 
Oh, what are they? <laughs> oh, if you wouldn't mind sharing. My, not at all. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. So I got sober. Uh, 2002 is my official sobriety date, but I started the journey towards my recovery almost 20 years of the day that we're talking. That's when I left the United States and went to work in Europe. And at the time, it was very much a geographical cure, but that was where I ended up being brought the program, the 12-step program I'm referring to. But I was mentored by a very wise woman in long-term 12-step recovery who understood trauma, who understood spiritual trauma, who understood the importance of expression and the arts. And she was just a truly wonderful mentor. And when I first started getting serious about wanting to get sober, something she recommended to me was that I prayed every morning because uh, I didn't ever stop fully believing in, the, in a divine power. And she said, well, pray to whatever you believe every morning for help staying sober. And I said, every morning, I said, Janet, I'm not a morning person. I'm lucky if I could get up, maybe get a shower, go to the bathroom and then go to work. If I pray, it's later in the day. And she was trying to explain to me how starting your day off on the right foot is oh so important. But then she listened to my excuse and said, oh, you go to the bathroom. That's interesting. So she gave me the 24 hours a day book from Hazelden and said, why don't you put this on your toilet seat? Because that way, if you use the bathroom every morning, like you say, chances are you're going to actually pick up that book. And maybe while you're sitting there, you'll flip through and read it. And she was right. It, it started <laughs> off the habit of while I was going to the bathroom every morning, I would read the book, I would say a prayer, and I I cannot go any morning now without at least reading something spiritual. That's my bare minimum practice every morning, including as well kind of my standard prayers and my collection of prayers I use have grown over the years. And I've become more of a morning person. I, I still wouldn't say I'm a natural morning person, but because so much of my professional life requires me to be up early, I've also learned that I hate being rushed, especially when I have to give a presentation. So it does help if I allot some extra time in the morning, not just to do my reading and my prayers, but I do some physical yoga. I like to do some sitting meditation. So I, I have found for me that that the time I spend in morning practice, whether it's five minutes or up to 20 minutes, is really what sets the tone for the rest of my day. That's wise. And I like the way that your, um, your sponsor at the time had you incorporate that into something you were already doing, because mm -hmm. I think that's such a great way to combat like all the excuses we can come up with around why we don't have time or don't like mornings. Or I actually just put a journal in by where my, I make my coffee in the morning. Cause I have these, some things I want to start writing down every day. And I'm like, just leave it here. So you see it. And when the coffee's doing its thing, you can use the journal, pick it up and write it. And I tell clients that now and people I work with, put it in your path. Whatever yes. you normally do on a daily basis anyway, put put those reminders in your paths. Or if you're trying to start a mindfulness practice, but you don't think you can sit and meditate, if you do brush your teeth every day and that's your one consistent practice, turn that into your mindfulness practice. Uh, make an intention to be fully present as you brush your teeth, which can be easier said than done. So I'm all about starting where you're at and then building from there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I talk a lot about noticing the shower when you're in the shower and just noticing how the hot water feels just to integrate some sensory awareness or to start noticing. Yep. It's such a great place because it's something we, we all, or most of us do, you know, on a pretty regular such a, basis. Such a beautiful practice. Yes. Yeah. 
It is. And you mentioned a few times, um, spiritual trauma. And I was Mm. curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. And then also this concept of spiritual bypassing, which I think fits in there. Yeah. They're, they're cousins of each other. I like to say so spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma is generally defined as whenever God or any spiritual concept is used as the weapon to yield power and control over others. So very common examples of spiritual abuse that align with other forms that are more known like sexual abuse would be, let's say, if a perpetrator tells an individual, this is what God wants, and God is being brought in as as a weapon. But even without the presence of any other kind of abuse, spiritual abuse can still exist on its own uh, often associated as what happens in cults and toxic churches uh, it can happen in the home as well uh, particularly when you have a parent or guardian or even grandparents who can be so devout in their faith quote unquote devout but it can cause them to do a lot of power wielding and controlling and just saying downright hateful things. And those of us who are in the LGBT community tend to fall most prey to a lot of this, especially when certain belief systems, theologies seem to give people a blank check to to bash on people who are different than them. And it can cause very, very deep wounding at, at the spiritual level. So yeah, in my experience, I had two devout parents and then my dad Uh, converted when I was young to a group that was very extreme. And yeah, it it was, I won't get into the whole story, but it was an experience of when I was a late teenager saying to myself, I don't think this is what God is really about. Mm -hmm. But so much of the negative self-esteem and hatred and, uh, and toxicity that I had swallowed inward, the source of all my shame seemed based in a lot of those messages that I got in the church. And I always like to clarify, it's not just about bashing on Christian churches, because every faith group can be prone to it. Wherever you have a spiritual construct and a power differential, you can have spiritual abuse as a way to yield power and control over people. And it happens in yoga communities, meditation communities, even these kind of spiritual uh places that are like well you know we're not affiliated there you tend to have it have it more than anywhere because you can have a teacher who's up there on the podium and they could say whatever they want promoting their own agenda and putting it under the guise of of spirit or spirituality so that is spiritual abuse and then spiritual bypass which is something oh i'm so glad we're paying more attention to this me too in recovery circles uh, so it was a term that was originally coined by a Buddhist teacher named John Wellwood in the 1970s. And he noticed that in meditation communities, a lot of folks were, well, you know, I just have to meditate more. I just have to commit more to my practices, not get so trapped in my my human form, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, would end up ignoring a lot of the work that they needed to do emotionally. And so once more, it kind of came out of this Buddhist context, but it happens in every faith denomination I've been exposed to. And it happens in 12-step recovery when we have this tendency to, oh, you know, uh, I'm going to let go and let God. And we get into slogan speak and I just have to work the steps about it. And it's not saying any of that is inherently bad, but when we do it as a band-aid or a cover-up to keep from going where we need to go to feel the feelings we need to feel, when we use it as a shield to, to try to keep from feeling the fullness of our humanity through, that's when it's a problem. 
I agree. I love everything you just said. And that's so interesting. I didn't know where that phrase came from. So I appreciate the education on that. Not a problem. And I love what you said too, about the, the, um, spiritual trauma and sort of toxicity being existing in some of the like quote unquote spiritual communities. Cause I've certainly, I've lived in quite a few of them through my life and I've, I I'm sort of jaded now around it. I think my boyfriend sometimes has this idea about going to live at, you know, some so-and-so starting a retreat center. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Even if it's the greatest, just because people are people, but it's, it's so good. I think for all of us just to know that it, it does exist. It is out there. And then again, to, you know, I, I always think this is maybe a little off topic, like a true teacher is one who leads us to ourselves well, and isn't sure. someone, you know, who's well, going to like, tell you what to do, or you need to be doing this, or you're not spiritual enough, or if you're eating meat, then you're, you know, whatever it is. That is the true definition of guru is someone who could point you to the reality that the true guru is within you. Absolutely. And I think a lot of gurus who have been implicated in abusive constructs have totally missed that point and have cultivated community where it's all about elevating their voice. And yeah, one of my favorite spiritual writers is a guy named Jeff Brown, who, like me, has lived in a lot of different spiritual contexts. And he kind of came out of all of it saying, yeah, take the pictures of the gurus off your altar and put up a picture of yourself. I love that. Because the way to the divine I have learned is truly through embracing your humanity to its fullest. And I'm grateful that... (laughs) Again, I got sober 18 and a half years ago, but I'm still doing a lot of detail work on myself in the journey since. Yeah. I don't think it ever stops though, does it? I mean, I think it, it, in some sense maybe becomes easier because we're more used to it, but it's not like we're ever, you know, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm maybe like, maybe that's what enlightenment is, but. I don't know. Cause I can get into these debates, pretty vigorous debates with people, especially on the mental health trauma side of things. When we talk about healing or restoration being this okay well the damage isn't there anymore and now you could live an adaptive life and 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 i do think that especially trauma healing can get us to this place where we can transform how memories are stored in our brain and live a life where we don't feel so affected by the trauma but i will go through these periods where i feel like man i don't know if the damage can ever fully be undone i mean i've learned how to live with it i've learned how to transform it to the best of my ability but it feels like every year always brings up something new for me to look at and there's there have been moments i get into where i can shame myself for some of that like oh am i not being a good enough yogi or am i not being a good enough emdr therapy patient or because i'm not fully healing myself and i go back again to janet my first recovery sponsor and mentor and i love this metaphor she put out for me she said jamie when a flower stops growing the only place it can go to is wilting and then from wilting it dies and there's always this point when a flower starts to wilt where you can still possibly revive it uh but i've used that as inspiration over the years to really suggest that hey this this is a journey and i'm fine embracing it as a journey i'm fine embracing it as yeah you know there was a lot of damage done and i may never go back to the way it's i don't think i ever will go back to the way things were maybe intended to be or things ought to be because that's just not the way life works and so i i love that idea of the growing flower needing to care for it needing to nurture it in order to keep it in bloom that's a good metaphor i like that as well and 
You have, you've written quite a few books, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about trauma and the 12 steps, because I know you, you wrote that in 2012, but then this year, a, a revised edition has been published. And so I know, um, Hey, kudos. That's amazing that you took the 12 steps. I, well, maybe correct me if I'm wrong and sort of, or maybe just tell me about it. Like what was your intent with writing the book and, and what do you feel that came out of it for you and for the intended readers? My vision in writing the original trauma and the 12 steps, and that vision has largely stayed intact, would be for anybody who's exposed to 12-step recovery to have an experience like I did with the sponsor I did who understood trauma. Mm -hmm. And because she understood trauma, she knew where to tread lightly with me in certain places. She knew where she had to adapt the language of the steps in certain places. She knew that outside help in the form of mental health counseling would be needed for me to get through the trauma blocks in order to really embrace the 12 steps. And because I had such an amazing experience with that sponsor and mentor, I ended up really finding a lot of value in 12-step recovery for me, even though I went on to do other forms of trauma-focused therapy later. And as I started to come of age as a professional and get trained as a professional, I realized that there was a lot of 12-step vitriol out there. And a lot of it was founded in, in experiences of people who had just, just horrible times in 12-step meetings and treatment centers that were very dogmatic. And I really saw a lot of merit to the criticism mm -hmm. while also realizing it doesn't have to be that way because that's not the experience I had with it and a lot of others I was meeting. It was not the experience they had with it. So uh, particularly as I got more trained in trauma and doing uh, trainings and writing and, and more exposure to that world of people who are trauma focused, I realized, wow, there's really a lot of anti 12 step sentiment here. And, and I kind of was filled <coughs> with the sense of, but this isn't how it should be. And so even in a lot of my courses, I would teach on trauma, or I did some courses on trauma and addiction, I would give this this idea of what is essentially trauma informed 12 step recovery. And after I would give a lot of these courses, professionals who also had 12 step exposure and were pro 12 step would come up to me and say, you have to write this down because this is a really good way to bridge the gap between the two worlds. So that was where the initial seeds were planted for me to write the first trauma and the 12 steps. And even when I went to write that book, I had a heck of a time finding a publisher. Uh, one of the publishers at the time said, oh, we don't like the 12 step focus because 12 steps is just kind of poison to some people. And we'll publish a book you want to write about trauma and addiction, but we don't want the 12 step focus. And then some other publishers on more of the 12 step end didn't necessarily feel there was anything original in the book. I had another publishing offer that was more academic. So I just decided to uh, self publish it, independently publish it myself in 2012, because I was so insisted that this message of the bridge that you can have a both and approach had to be put out there. And through that move, I just ended up meeting so many amazing professionals and people in recovery who, who saw it that way too, and realized that we were really onto something with this both and approach. And then yeah, 2019, 2020 rolled around and I did find a publisher approached me who was interested finally. And uh, that just gave me a more expanded reach for the book and a, a new motivation to update it 
with seven, eight years, not just of what's been updated in research, but seven, eight years of new motivation and inspiration I've gotten by talking to others who are of similar mind. It's amazing. What's, what's your writing process like? It's a great question. I love to be asked because on one hand, I feel it's very simple. And on another hand, it, it kind of busts some people's bubbles when they realize this. By time I sit down to write a book. Now, articles are a little different because when I write articles and blogs, that that's often me trying to work something out in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I take it to the page and an article usually ends up coming out. One of the jokes in our community is, oh, when Jamie gets pissed off, she writes an open letter, <laughs> which usually comes out as a blog, right? But when it comes to writing books, by time I sit down to write a book, I have taught the material so much or have talked about it so much. By teaching it, I mean either in CE courses or other retreat style teachings I do. By talking about it, I mean even in podcast interviews like this or casual conversations I've had with people that by time it's by the time that it's time for the book, it's not that difficult for me to write because I know the material so well. So the probably the most difficult part is just allotting the time, mm-hmm. getting an organizational structure in place. And then uh, one of the great writers said something like the secret to writing is just opening your heart and let it bleed. And so I think there's something to that, that I just kind of open up my, my mind body complex here and let it flow. Uh, yeah. But for me, it's, it's very much about, just writing being at that level at book level being an extension of what you've taught about and talked about so much because sometimes people i mentor or people in my network will come to me and they'll ask me to read an idea they have for a book and one of my first pieces of feedback i typically give is you have not taught this enough this is reading like a college paper Hmm. so and that is, of course, if you're interested in doing more of the kind of writing I do, which is clinical memoir, not clinical memoir, clinical writing with some kind of touches of memoir and personal insight put in. And so a lot of it I always tell folks is you got to decide what kind of book you're going to write if that's part of your thinking process. Because if you want to write an academic textbook, your process is going to be probably a heck of a lot different than if you're going to write a memoir. But for me doing the kind of writing that I do, that's my general process. That's great. I think that's really wise. I would imagine too, once you've taught things to that level that your like your organizational structure is probably there somewhere already in the ethers from just having taught, like, you know, what goes first and you know, what comes next and where the pieces fit together. Most definitely. That's my experience anyway. That's, that's a good, that's good advice or a good overview of your writing process. Um, and I love how you talk about trauma, Jamie, and how you describe it as an unhealed wound. And in your TEDx talk, you spoke about this with the metaphor between an actual physical wound and then trauma and, and how we need to look at trauma more that way and how mental health in general, we need to have just a greater awareness of. And so I don't even know what my question is here. Maybe I would just like to hear you talk a little bit more about that idea of trauma And particularly, I think here's the question around like things that maybe we don't perceive as trauma. I've had a few conversations recently with women new to recovery and they're saying, well, I never had any trauma. It's just, it's just me. There's a problem with me. My parents are great. Everything was great. It's just something about me. And I'm like, well, maybe we can look at the idea of trauma just a little bit differently. um, And the idea of addiction a little differently. 
Yes. And you already cited my main answer to this question, which is the idea that trauma is any unhealed wound. And I mean, the idea is not mine originally. Trauma, the English word trauma comes from the Greek word, which means wound. It's a simple, direct translation. And even in doing a lot of my early trauma training, I would read that and it would just make a heck of a lot of sense. Like, of course, this is wounding we're dealing with. And so when people are in a mindset about trauma as one thing, which can happen. I mean, I grew up thinking trauma was about people who were just brutally assaulted or people who went to war or survived a natural disaster, that that kind of old school PTSD definition is what we were talking about when we were working with trauma. And even before I got trained in EMDR therapy, because the EMDR approach is so much about widening the definition of trauma, that we can have large T trauma, which are like the ones I just mentioned and things that are called adverse life experiences that might not qualify you for a PTSD diagnosis, but are still relevant. Going back to Janet, who I've talked about a lot in this by my first sponsor. I remember when she first identified this meltdown I was having in, I don't think I was fully sober yet. I was peddling around trying to get it. And I had this meltdown at work one day and my boss called her. He goes, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> like, can you help? And she even ended up telling him that this isn't just a girl overreacting. This is some kind of traumatic meltdown she's having. And she took me home or to the place I was living. And we talked for a little bit after she calmed me down. And it was the first time anybody had used the word trauma to describe a lot of my behaviors and reactions. And I fought her kind of like your women might fight you like, but I didn't go to war. I didn't. And she said, Jamie, based on what you've told me already, Skid Row or the war zone was your bedroom, was your house. It's, it's different for different people, but it can still leave the same impact on the brain or the body. So I think when we look at it through this lens of wound, that word wound is a little more approachable for, mm -hmm. for most people, especially in our culture. And most people can accept the fact that they've been wounded, that life or the people in their life have knocked them around a little bit emotionally, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. And just like with physical wounds, they could come in all shapes and sizes. You can have a massive physical wound that plummets you. And of course, it means you're going to need professional care. Your will require monitoring or it may end up being fatal. But some wounds are just scrapes and burns. And I got burned in my kitchen last week and I'm still dealing with the fallout of it. Some may clear up relatively on their own with, with a little bit of treatment, but we still need to give it care and attention because if we don't and we keep picking at it and exposing ourselves to further injury and denying the fact that it's there, that's where these quote unquote smaller wounds can still end up being significant in the long run. Or we may grow up in environments where we're getting small wounds on a day-to-day -day basis, but they add up and make life a very painful experience. So that's why I feel so strongly about that metaphor. I, I use it as a way to orient a lot of clients and people I work with to this broader definition of trauma. And it's really all about how is the wound addressed? Because you can have a major physical wounding experience and if it gets the attention it needs right away and you're given the time and space to heal it or you have existing coping to deal with it or you have a good strong physical constitution, that wound may go on not being a big deal in your life. 
just like you can go through an emotional, physical, spiritual trauma and not necessarily be impacted long-term if it was given the chance to heal at the time. But so many of the folks we deal with, it's because their wounds have festered and infected and not been attended to that the problems result. Yeah, I think there's almost that um, sort of fear of appearing weak, I think, to address some of these things that maybe aren't like the bigger issues, like buck up and, you, you know, just get over it and things like that. That whole vernacular is... Yep, pull themselves up, counter- pull, your, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps is mm-hmm. I reference that in the TED Talk as this ultimate folk saying that is probably the most insensitive thing we can tell people who survive trauma because if we're using that metaphor pull yourself up by the bootstraps some people don't have boots some people don't have straps or they might have both but they were never taught how to do it and uh, another parallel that i give is recovery does or healing whatever you're calling it does require us to feel feelings in order to move something through Yet so many of us in this culture have not been taught how to effectively manage emotion. And and, wow, I mean, I could speak forever (laughs) on this soapbox that often the basic is teaching people things like emotional vocabulary and looking at, well, what were the messages you got that told you it was not okay to feel? Because this phobia of our feelings that society, our family systems, especially in the West, tend to ingrain in us is really what exacerbates, if not causes, a lot of our problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's always crazy to me how it's almost like a negative. You know, we're supposed to be these highly productive, like forward-thinking machines almost, and God forbid we need to take a nap or feel something in the middle of the workplace, somehow that's equated with weakness. And it's very bothersome, particularly when you, you know, if you work with people who are at these higher professional levels and are, you know, quote unquote successful, who have a massive burnout and who are struggling so intensely inside because these basic life skills of, of feeling, of noticing emotion just aren't put in place at a young age or anywhere along the line. Yep. Uh, and Another, since you've mentioned weakness now a couple times, a point I draw out in the TED Talk is, let's say that an athlete gets their knee cut in a game. If they can go back into the game and play hurt, even if they're still bleeding out, societally, we tend to elevate that person as being able to rise above injury, tough it out. But if that same person had to ask for help, then, I mean, unless it's a major injury, we we tend to not look that kindly on them. And we can comment all we want about how sporting culture does that, yet the point I'm trying to make is that's what we do as society. We, we elevate, we amplify these narratives of people who can play well hurt or play well under pressure. But as soon as you may need to bow out of the game or ask for help, there's even this tone of pity that can be put on that person and, and in the best circumstances and in the worst circumstances just a lot of name calling and messaging and scripting about how weak you are for asking for help shame a lot of shame involved with that something else that surprised me too and i don't know if you've seen this in your work is a lot of times when i do courses or start working with people i like to introduce the concept of like what's happening when you feel good or when you feel you know quote unquote good or when you feel like yourself or when things are going okay like what's going on in your body in these moments and 
I was really surprised how much of a foreign concept. And I think for me too, I started practicing this work really early on in my recovery, which for me was incredibly helpful um, because once I was able to identify, you know, oh, I feel good. I feel in my body. It, it really helped me not want to return to, to drinking. But I don't know if you've seen that as well. And I just think it's interesting that that again is not something that there's emphasis placed on, you know, and not good. It's like pleasure isn't, it's almost like a hedonistic thing to talk about. Yes. Uh, fear of the body. And I do think a lot of that is uh, whew, fallout from over-religious contexts, puritanical type contexts. I always say that America is the country where we're simultaneously obsessed with sex and push it away and are afraid of it. And it's true. just so many messages around the body that I think many of us in recovery grew up with that like with feelings ultimately crystallizes as this, you can't trust the body. And this fear of pleasure, this fear of whatever it may be. I know a lot of that was church influenced for me. And I think where I struggled a bit in early recovery is, well, <clears throat> you know, I gave into my desires. I gave into this need for pleasure too much and look at where it ended me up with a massive addiction by the age of 19. And I had to learn in recovery that my desires to feel good, my desires to be fully in my body and feel good at the body level are not inherently bad. I mean, they're far from it. They're natural. It's, it's part of the human experience, but learning how to manage it, learning how just to respect what the body is giving you as a trusted messenger instead of, well, you know, the, the body will lead you astray, <laughs> desires will lead you astray. And yeah, when I work with individuals in recovery, when I work with individuals, especially in the first stages of trauma recovery, so much of the early pieces are, let, let, let's get you acquainted with this body that you have, because the body is not, it, it's not what you maybe have been trained to think it is. And I could talk forever and ever about this. I'm trying to keep the answer concise. Suffice it to say that I, I think you're right on with your thinking on that. I love the, um, I'm wondering too about your dancing mindfulness um, courses and program, like how that really factors into this and with recovery, like having this new awareness of your body through, through movement and movement in a, you know, a safe or a sacred space. So um, some of what dancing mindfulness is about, because all mindfulness practice is about learning to be with what is and not trying to shove it away. I, I often fight this stereotype that mindfulness is just a relaxation technique where you sit with cross legs under a tree on a beach. I mean, yes, if mindfulness helps you relax, great. But fundamentally, what a mindfulness practice can help you to do is, is either sit with, dance with, move with, just be with whatever is life, life is bringing you. And so in dancing mindfulness, we use dance in the expressive arts as a way to teach people mindfulness. And people can have a love-hate relationship with the dance part of it because sometimes people are so elevated activated in their bodies they can't sit still to do sitting meditation so having a practice where they're able to fully express with the body to um, use the body as a way not just to express but then to be anchored to the present moment becomes just a valuable process but we often have to ease many of our folks into that 
because as soon as the practice teaches them, oh, I have a body A and B, I'm allowed to move it freely, that's where a lot of people stop trusting themselves and start to have that experience of, I can't dance or I can't move. And so we often say in dancing mindfulness, if you're allergic to the word dance, to call it dance we can call it mindful movement and that's why even though i developed it more as a practice of dancing mindfulness it's now become a full expressive arts program and part of what expressive arts is by definition is we don't just do one expressive form we may do dance but we may also do visual art writing playing music listening to music even things like gardening and cooking can be forms of expressive arts and so some of our folks who may hesitate to dance in a real strict sense or strict definition they do end up finding their dance let's say when they learn how to paint or when they end up getting getting their hands in the garden uh so there's so many different ways to dance there's so many different ways to be with what is and that is a big part of what we uh try to guide and facilitate people to do in the dancing mindfulness program so what a great program have you been able to switch to to more of an online format this year we have which has has both surprised me and not surprised me because if you would have told me this time last year alice that i'd be doing my whole work life (laughs) sitting here in my house in ohio on zoom i would have laughed at you saying that would never happen because i'm such a in there in the middle of things person but on the other hand it's not surprised me at all because i've realized the power of technology to connect us for for many many years and a lot of our networking especially in dancing mindfulness and emdr has happened online so when it came to finding out ways to train the curriculum and actually uh, teach or facilitate dancing mindfulness experiences online yeah it took some adaptation and it still can take some adaptation with things like how do we make the tech work how do we keep people as safe as possible in the spaces that they're in but i i think a real gift of the pandemic has been it's allowed people to access courses and classes and experiences who may not have been able to where travel has been prohibitive. Cause I did travel a lot before the pandemic, but I can't travel everywhere. And uh, I've, I've really liked seeing where people have been able to join us from in the world and just realize how much we, we very much do have in common as people who just want a healthier life. Yeah. There's such a, it makes the whole, the world seem smaller and the network feel bigger has been my experience of it. I think too, with, with the movement practices like that, there may be some freedom associated with it for people to be in their homes and to have the, you know, that container of a familiar, familiar place or space. For a lot of people, we're getting that feedback. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, I'm curious as we're talking about trauma and then this past year with COVID, if they're, I mean, that's a whole other podcast really, Mm -hmm. but I know some of the concern has been like in the trauma community that I'm affiliated with, that there is a high potential for PTSD, like six months down the road, um, potentially with COVID. And I'm just curious if there are practices, ideas, guideposts that you recommend for, for people just to stay more, I guess, like all the things we've been talking about present in their bodies, okay. in themselves throughout this time. So going, I, I answer everything through the wound metaphor with this, because of course there's a high potential for PTSD, CPTSD, because yeah. the world has been living in a collective trauma that doesn't seem to be ending. 
And I believe that's a big factor of what makes this traumatic for a lot of folks is no end in sight. And uh, a description I heard of the COVID crisis that really resonated for me is we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats because some people may have come into the pandemic pretty well fortified with the mental emotional coping tools that they needed to ride this out. Other people might, this, this, <laughs> they've had to learn in a trial by fire how to cope and some aren't doing so well uh, because either are not getting the support or whatever it may be. So I just think the fact that we have awareness of this as a trauma is good. And also I think we have to have awareness that people's existing traumatic scripts that have been unhealed or unsettled may be very much amplified by what's going on right now with COVID. And COVID hasn't, doesn't, hasn't done it for me so much as the political cycle does it for me, because that ties into a lot of trauma yeah. scripts of what I grew up in. Uh, but I, I really try to encourage compassion uh, for, for self and for people you're working with. And I do think validation is a major part of what can help long-term trauma healing take place when you know you're in the middle of a trauma. Because we do talk about this concept called trauma resistance skills. And part of that is, can you recognize that I'm actively being dramatized right now? And even being able to name it as such, I think can help. Because that might help you to be gentler with yourself, to realize, hey, it's okay that my productivity level isn't where it needs to be right now. Can I be kinder to myself? Can I a lot more time to do practices that I find healing and nourishing? In recovery circles, I know we've taken greater conscientiousness to stay connected with each other and to reach out to people who we know might be struggling with doing online meetings only. So I, I think, yes, we are going to see a tremendous amount of fallout from the pandemic, but I think it's exacerbating what's already been there for a lot of people. Uh, I agree. And anytime we're in crisis like this, we can take it as an opportunity to, but I say that knowing, yeah, if you're not quite there, it's okay. Be kind to yourself keep telling yourself this is not normal what we're experiencing right now and if you can validate that the wound is there you'll be doing yourself a lot of service in the long run than just trying to deny that it's a thing and then it's festering and infecting that's a really good piece of advice to just acknowledge that what's going on is not normal and the wound is there i think people need to hear that <sighs> Yeah. And so I won't keep you too much longer, Jamie, but I did want to ask one more question just around sure. uh, for the recovery world. Again, if you have any, and I know there's so much advice to give and so many useful things for people early on in recovery, but if you have one or two pieces of really solid advice that you would advise for anyone who's new or thinking about recovery, particularly now with everything that's going on, um, what those would be? To not be afraid to ask for help yet i also recognize that goes against the way a lot of us have been socialized because so many of us it's like it's, it's not cool to ask for help and i think men very much struggle with this so it's more than okay to ask for help it's more than okay to seek out professional help and if you are going to seek out professional help do your homework and attempt to find somebody who seems to get trauma because 
a lot of people I think don't realize just how many counselors are still in the dark about trauma because it's really not a part a lot of our graduate education at least not yet yeah. it's changing in some circles so don't be afraid to ask for help and whether you're looking at a professional or I would say if 12-step recovery or another mutual help fellowship or recovery program because I'm not a 12-step exclusivist if another program appeals to you, try to see, search for either sponsorship, mentorship, friendship in those programs with people who get trauma as well. But this goes to my second big piece of advice in terms of seeking out a support system is to find people who are both going to validate you and challenge you. I once again, circle it back to Janet. So many of these recovery interviews, I, I talk about this woman who saved my life in so many ways. And after she heard a lot of my story, the first time I opened up to her, she said, Jamie, after everything you went through, it's no wonder you became an alcoholic. So what now? What are we going to do about it now? What's the plan now? And in that message was the spirit of she validated me first, and then she challenged me. If she would have come in with just challenging me, she would have shut me down. If she would have just validated me, like, oh, it's the trauma, it's the trauma, it's the trauma, I would have stayed mired in a lot of these self-pity scripts and I probably wouldn't have changed. So I think we have to validate people first, but also um, appropriately challenge or challenge in a trauma-informed way. And so if you are going to ask for help, uh, try to find people who do that. That's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Jamie. Um, do you, I like to offer anyone an opportunity to pitch anything? If you have any programs coming up or anything, this will probably sure. air sometime in the next two to three weeks. So if great. you've got anything you'd like to let people know about, please share. So the easiest site to find my resources is called traumamadesimple.com. That's traumamadesimple.com. I have many, many free videos. Anything I've done for free online is on that site, including information about both of the books, the TEDx talk we were talking about. So traumamadesimple.com. My uh, personal page is jamiemarriage.com, simply my name.com. My business is the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. And our website is instituteforcreativemindfulness.com. And that's where you can learn about uh, our EMDR training program, our expressive arts training program, any of the more continuing education offerings I would give. And then Dancing Mindfulness has a website about our community, dancingmindfulness.com. So any one of those four websites, you'll be able to find me and connect with things that I'm, I'm doing out there. That's great. And we'll post all of those in the, in the show notes so everyone can take a look. I highly recommend you check out uh, Dr. Jamie's website. There's a ton of great writing, really interesting resources you know, information and videos. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Thank you very much, Alice. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you as well.